The two men looked each other in the eye with concern. They both knew what needed to be done. It had been clear for several days now. They were all but lost, without adequate food to feed their men. And with each passing day, their situation became more and more dire. One of them needed to find game and a way out of these godforsaken mountains. They needed to split up. It was the one thing they didn't want to do, yet the only thing that could potentially save them at this point. As they each extended a hand to say farewell and to wish each other good fortune, they paused and remained fixed on the other man's face. They had been through so much together, and now, with their men on the brink of starvation, they were separating in a last-ditch effort to survive. From this mountain I could observe high rugged mountains in every direction as far as the eye could see. With the greatest exertion we could only make 12 miles up the mountain. We camped near a bank of old snow about 3 feet deep. We melted snow to drink and cooked our horse flesh to eat. William Clark, September 15th, 1805. Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. In this season, we'll take an in-depth look at one of the most famous expeditions in American history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. In each episode, we'll highlight key virtues exemplified by the Corps of Discovery and give you a truly unique perspective of this incredible American adventure. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. In this episode, we will explore some of the greatest struggles of the Lewis and Clark expedition and how the virtues of leadership, judgment, respect, ingenuity, communication, and compassion saw the men through obstacles we can scarcely imagine today. Quotes from the expedition journal entries are cited throughout this episode. For listener clarity and narrative coherence, some of these quotes have been revised. Welcome to Episode 3, Canoeing the Mountains. It had taken considerable leadership to guide the men through the harsh winter of 1805. The Corps of Discovery now welcomed spring like a starving man welcomes sustenance. On April 7, 1805, they departed. Some of the men headed back down the Missouri River with their large keelboat. The boat was loaded with journals, specimens, and other findings the Corps had acquired thus far in their journey. It was of momentous importance that these were received back in St. Louis and made their way to Jefferson. Lewis, Clark, and the remainder of the Corps of Discovery, and Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and her two-month-old son Pompey, headed westward along the Missouri towards modern-day Montana. They had two small pirogue boats, which were much more nimble and efficient but lacked the space for the stores they had enjoyed on the keelboat. 
There was a sense now that they were truly stepping into the unknown. Lewis's feelings teetered between excitement and optimism for the journey ahead, and of how exposed they were in this unforgiving land. We were now about to penetrate a country at least 2,000 miles in width, on which the foot of civilized man had never trodden. The good or evil it had in store for us was for experiment yet to determine, and these little vessels contained every article by which we were to expect to subsist or defend ourselves. Meriwether Lewis, April 7th, 1805. Author and historian, Larry Morris. It was a voyage. That's how Lewis always referred to it. Uh, rather than a hike or a trek or anything like that, he called it a voyage. And it certainly was. Uh, the great majority of it was on water. Lewis's plan was to travel up the Missouri to a place called Three Forks, modern-day Three Forks, Montana. They would then trade with the Shoshone, the people of Sacagawea, for horses, which would be essential for crossing the Rocky Mountains. The plan was simple enough, but its execution, however, would prove much more challenging. On April 29th, the men laid eyes on their first grizzly bear since leaving the Dakotas. The Corps had been warned numerous times by the natives of these powerful creatures and the danger they posed. Although they were initially confident that the modern rifle could be used to easily subdue one of these beasts, subsequent encounters would soon change their mind. Captain Clark and Drewer killed the largest brown bear this evening which we have yet seen. It was a most tremendous looking animal and extremely hard to kill. He had five balls through the lungs and five others in various parts. He swam more than half the distance across the river to a sandbar, and it was at least 20 minutes before he died. We had no means of weighing this monster. Captain Clark thought he weighed 500 pounds. For my own part, I think that estimate was too small, by about 100 pounds. He measured eight feet, seven and a half inches from nose to the hind feet. Meriwether Lewis, May 5th, 1805. On May 14th, a near disastrous incident took place while both Lewis and Clark were on shore, a rare occurrence. As chance would have it, Toussaint Charbonneau, who was very timid in the water, was at the helm of the pirogue when a violent gust of wind caught its sail. Panicking, Charbonneau turned directly into the wind, unsettling the boat. Lewis described the scene. Charbonneau, still crying to his God for mercy, had not yet recollected the rudder, nor could the repeated orders of the boatmen bring him to his recollection until he threatened to shoot him instantly if he did not take hold of the rudder and do his duty. The waves by this time were running very high, but the fortitude, resolution, and good conduct of Cruzot saved her. With the pirogue now on its side, the river began taking all manner of priceless cargo with it. Instruments, journals, supplies, books, and medicine. Thankfully, Charbonneau's wife saved the day. Two days later, after the items that had been soaked had dried and could be repacked, Lewis said of Sacagawea, 
the Indian woman to whom I ascribe equal fortitude and resolution with any person on board at the time of the accident, caught and preserved most of the light articles which were washed overboard. Her heroics in fishing the items out of the moving water while the boat was still on its side can only be fully appreciated when considering the difficulty of this task while holding an infant. The young Shoshone woman had earned the full respect of the man, and just a few days later the two captains named a small tributary off the Missouri after her. To this day, the waterway in central Montana is named the Sacagawea River. Having made their way westward across the gentle plains throughout the month of May, on June 3rd the Corps arrived at a large fork in the river that they did not expect. One flowed from the northwest and the other from the southwest. Two separate scouting parties were sent out to explore each fork, and after navigating each fork, they observed the complexion of each, the north fork exhibiting murky, slow-moving water, and the south fork exhibiting clearer, swiftly-moving water. Lewis and Clark met, and after some deliberation, the two leaders decided on the south fork. Many of the men disagreed, believing the north fork was the correct route. Private Cruzette was one of the most notable proponents of the north fork, but in the end the men respected the decision of their leaders, and the Corps continued south on what was the Missouri, the correct route to the Rockies. The judgment of Lewis and Clark in this instance is something remarkable. Using their collective skill sets, experience, and gut intuition, the men didn't make a rash call in the name of not wasting too much time. They set up camp, delegated some of the crew on scouting missions, and even went along themselves when there was no clear consensus. In the end, they made the right call, and had they buckled to the pressures of the crew to head north, they would have either needed to turn around, wasting time and resources, or cross the Rockies in northern Montana which could have been disastrous. For the men of the crew who believed their leaders to be in error, believing themselves that the North Fork was correct, no small amount of respect and loyalty was required to negate their own judgment and to trust Lewis and Clark. If the South Fork was wrong, their lives could have been put in unwarranted danger, yet they chose to respect the call that was made, showing remarkable professionalism and duty. Anticipating the Great Falls of the Missouri, the Corps cached some of their supplies at the aptly named Camp Deposit. With Clark manning the pirogues, Lewis and two others broke away from the main group on a scouting mission and arrived at their target on June 13th. When my ears were saluted to the agreeable sound of the fall of water and advancing a little further, I saw the spray arise above the plain like a column of smoke, which soon began to make a roaring too tremendous to be mistaken for any cause short of the great falls of the Missouri. Meriwether Lewis, June 13, 1805. The falls, however, would pose their greatest challenge to date. Lewis had originally budgeted for half a day to portage the falls. Author and historian Ellen Woodger. The canoes they were using to get up the Missouri River were dugouts and they weighed approximately 1,000 pounds each. 
and were built to carry thousands of pounds worth of supplies and equipment, as well as the men themselves. Now just imagine what strength and endurance it had to take to get around obstacles such as the Great Falls, uh, which, as we know, was the first and the worst of their portages. The ground could be rocky and extremely uneven after buffalo had been through muddy areas that had then hardened. In order to drag their canoes along the path that Clark had scoped out, Patrick Gass constructed two very crude wheeled wagons out of cottonwood trees, which were the only ones available in the area. But that's very soft wood, so there were frequent breaks. And despite the makeshift wheels, the men still had to pull and drag the wagons and their loads along extremely rough terrain. So it's no wonder they were exhausted at the end of every day. Little did Lewis know, the man would not bypass this majestic piece of frothing rapids until the start of July, nearly a full month. The reason for this was that the Great Falls described to the man by the Hadatsa Indians was actually a series of five waterfalls stretching about 10 miles. The falls range from 6 to 87 feet, the largest being some 900 feet wide. Lewis soon realized the short portage he had envisioned was going to be a grand undertaking. The party went across the portage with one canoe on truck wheels and loaded with part of our baggage. We had great difficulty in getting on. As the axle broke several times, we got within half a mile of our intended camp, much fatigued at dark. We took a load to the river on the men's backs where we found a number of wolves had destroyed a great part of our meat, which I had left at that place. William Clark, June 22nd, 1805. The portage, which they thought would be about a mile, ended up being 18 miles. They were forced to hide their heaviest boat near the falls and fashion makeshift wagons to move the other pirogues. For the next month, their daily routine was loading up the canoes, trekking the 18 miles to the west side of the falls, making camp, then getting up the next morning and making the trip back to do it all over again. The ground was rocky, uneven and unforgiving, and the prickly pear cactuses native to the region made for constant trouble underfoot, causing the men's moccasins to wear out every few days. They were met with the intense heat of summer on the plains during the day and intense violent thunderstorms at night. The gnats and mosquitoes were relentless, and care had to be taken to avoid rattlesnakes and grizzly bears around every bend in the portage route. On June 14th, having been chased into the river by a charging grizzly bear, encountering a mountain lion in his den, and then being charged by three bull buffalo on the same day, Lewis bemused. It now seemed to me that all the beasts of the neighborhood had made a league to destroy me, or that some fortune was disposed to amuse herself at my expense. But the men persevered. Their ingenuity even led them to create a seal for the portage wagons, which, when the wind picked up, would aid the men in moving forward towards their destination at the west side of the falls. Having realized the collapsible canoe they brought wouldn't work, a failure that irritated Lewis to no end, the men also fashioned two dugout canoes from cottonwood trees. The trip thus far had been one of adapting and readapting to each changing scenario, and this skill would serve the men well for the remainder of the journey. Finally on July 2nd, the men shuttled the last of their supplies 
all baggage and six pirogues, to a spot just opposite of the White Bear Islands, named for the grizzlies that inhabited it. The men celebrated by paddling across to the island and killing a grizzly, bringing it back for a well-earned hearty supper. In the evening, most of the corps crossed over to an island to attack a large brown bear that held possession and seemed to defy all that would attempt to besiege him there. Our troops, however, stormed the place, gave no quarter, and it fell. Our army returned the same evening to camp without having suffered any loss on their side. Patrick Gass, July 2nd, 1805. On July 4th, the man celebrated the nation's 29th birthday, and the last of the whiskey was drunk. This was a big deal, as men of the army were accustomed to always having whiskey stores on hand. But it was deemed by Lewis and Clark that at this juncture, they simply didn't have enough space or the energy to bring any more than the bare essentials. The celebration of independence was seen as the perfect way to both reward the men for their hard work and to get rid of this heavy, non-essential cargo. The Corps was now west of the falls, with the greatest water obstacle behind them, but another obstacle still lay before them, the mighty Rocky Mountains. It was believed by some that these mountains were much like the Appalachian Mountains of the east, no more than a few thousand feet high. But Lewis knew this was wishful thinking. He had seen the tall, snow-capped peaks from a bluff before they had even reached the Great Falls. The fact that he could see them from such a distance and the heavy spring snowpack assured him they would be a formidable foe. And so it would prove. In late July, the Corps made it to Three Forks. They had been told about this place and it was another welcome waypoint to have achieved. For the past few days, they had seen signs of the Shoshone people, even spotting an abandoned camp. Sacagawea had started to recognize landmarks, and this gave Lewis hope, as he knew the help from the natives would be essential in crossing the Rockies. But it was summer, and the Shoshone, who spent a good portion of the season in the mountains, fishing and hunting the higher elevations, were sparse along the Missouri Corridor. Having reached Three Forks, the Corps had now reached the headwaters of the Missouri, one of the major goals of the expedition. They named the three converging rivers the Gallatin, the Jefferson, and the Madison. Albert Gallatin was a Pennsylvanian politician who had championed and helped plan the expedition. Thomas Jefferson was of course the current president and main reason the expedition had happened at all. And James Madison would become Jefferson's successor in the White House. Clark scouted the Jefferson and Madison rivers, the Southwest and South Forks, but could not find the Shoshone anywhere. But then he fell ill and it would take him several days to recover enough to proceed. Lewis proceeded with the majority of the men and continued up the Jefferson, leaving a note on a tree for Clark to follow the Jefferson westward. Unfortunately, Clark never saw the note, and it was later speculated that a beaver had felled the tree Lewis had hung it on. Instead, Clark decided on the Wisdom River, a big mistake. He encountered rapids on this rough waterway and was forced to turn back. Eventually, the men reconvened on August 7th, and it was here that Sacagawea recognized another landmark. The Indian woman recognized the point of high plain to our right, which she informed us was not very distant from the summer retreat of her nation, 
she assures us that we shall find her people on the river or on the river immediately west of its source, which from its present size cannot be very distant. It is now all important for us to meet with these people as soon as possible. Meriwether Lewis, August 8, 1805. Although they were experiencing the heat of summer, Lewis knew the onset of winter and the mountains was just around the corner and they would need the expertise of the Shoshone to make it through the Rockies. He departed along the Jefferson on foot, and Clark remained behind to bring up the canoes. The river was low, and the constant boulders they encountered slowed their progress immensely. At this point, they were only making four to five miles a day. On the 11th, the scouting party finally saw Shoshone on horseback, Having been told by Sacagawea that the word Tababone meant white man, they shouted the word to the rider, but he spurred the horse and rode off. The word likely meant something more like stranger, as the Shoshone didn't have a word for white man. Sacagawea was probably born in uh, Idaho, and uh, her people lived along the uh, Idaho-Montana border. One of the key enemies of the Shoshone people uh, were the Hidatsa. Uh, when Sacagawea was young, uh, her people were hunting uh, buffalo over in Montana, and they were raided by some Hidatsa Indians, and Sacagawea and a friend of hers were kidnapped into North Dakota, and she was eventually sold to a French-Canadian fur trapper by the name of Charbonneau. But the Shoshone people, I, I believe it is accurate to say uh, they were probably in more poverty than, than their uh, neighbors. Of course, most of these Indian nations were really uh, continually struggling. And this was one of the things that made that buffalo hunt so important to the Shoshone, that they were willing to risk aggression from either the Blackfoot or uh, Hidatsa neighbors. But the uh, Shoshone in particular were in kind of a precarious position because they weren't as strong as the uh, Blackfoot or the Hidatsa, who were both enemies at that time. The next day, the men crossed the Continental Divide, the hydraulic separator of the continent. Each water source east of this landmark flows east. Everything west of it flows to the west. The men were the first Americans to cross the divide. They went through the Lemhi Pass from modern-day Beaverhead County, Montana to Lemhi County, Idaho, leaving the Louisiana Purchase Territory for the first time. And they basically carried their uh, canoes over the, the Continental Divide. And there was another stream running toward the Pacific, and this was the Lemhi River, which flows into the Salmon River This is in Idaho. The, the Salmon River runs west and eventually flows into the snake and the snake flows into the Columbia. So right there had a, a possibility that Lewis and Clark could just in the uh, Lemhi River as soon as it was deep enough and navigate their canoes all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But the uh, Salmon River was, was not navigable. They were now technically in Oregon country, the disputed land contested by the Americans and British. From this point, Lewis looked to the west and spotted the Bitterroot Mountains, with peaks ranging from 8,000 to 10,000 feet high. On August 13th, 
the scouting party finally made contact with the Shoshone when they came upon three Shoshone women. One of the women ran off, but a young girl, an elderly woman, waited for the man to approach. I instantly laid by my gun and advanced towards them. They appeared much alarmed, but saw that we were too near for them to escape by flight. They therefore seated themselves on the ground, holding down their heads as if reconciled to die. I took the elderly woman by the hand, raised her up, and pulled up my shirt sleeve to show her my skin, to prove to her the truth of the assertion that I was a white man. Meriwether Lewis, August 13th, 1805. Lewis did this to demonstrate to the woman that he wasn't an enemy to the Shoshone. Having spent the past four months in the wild, his skin was deeply tanned, and he could have easily been mistaken for an Indian, perhaps one of their Blackfeet enemies. He got out some vermilion paint, a shade of orange, and dabbed it on their cheeks. Takagawea had told Lewis that this color was a sign emblematic of peace. It worked, and it was another example of the pricelessness of the Shoshone woman, whose presence was something of a white flag for the expedition throughout the journey to the Rockies. The men were subsequently led down a path and were soon greeted by 60 Shoshone warriors on horseback. Laying down his firearm and holding up a flag of peace, Lewis was soon approached and embraced by the leader of the war party. The encounter went well and it was all down to the compassion Lewis had shown towards the elderly woman and young girl who had advocated for him and his man to the war party. Lewis didn't speak the woman's language, and he had only a vague phrase which may or may not have been understood by the Shoshone. It was the care he took to ease the woman's fears and suspicion of him that won her over and won favor with the Shoshone leadership, which was absolutely crucial to do as they needed horses from them. Lewis spoke to the chief, a man named Kamihawit, and through sign language and interpreters, he was told that all waterways through the Rockies were impassable. Kamihawit did tell Lewis of a trail that went over the mountains that was used by the Nez Perce, a powerful tribe living west of the Rocky Mountains. The route was used by this tribe every year as they came east to the plains to hunt buffalo. But with this information came a warning. Kamihawit told Lewis that the route was fraught with danger and possessed little or no sustenance. But the moment Lewis heard of it, his mind was made up. This was in the late summer and fall of 1805. They had very serious mountains, to, some real dangers. So uh, crossing the Continental Divide turned out to be not just one little hop. And so that was really a crucial time. They hoped to get through this section of the Rockies, it was called the Bitterroots, uh, via the Salmon River. But Kamehawait had, had told them this was impractical, and Clark had confirmed this. So they did decide to take Kamehawait's advice and go by foot across the mountains. Lewis, through a mixture of threats and bribery, managed to convince the Shoshone to follow him to where he expected Clark to have reached on the river. He needed their help to portage their supplies into the mountains. While waiting for Clark, and with the Shoshone growing increasingly skeptical of these white men, 
Lewis gave Kamihawet his rifle and told him to shoot him if they were ambushed. This eased the Shoshone's fears that this was all a ruse, and a day later Clark was located. From the portage boats to York, the Shoshone had never seen a black man before, to the many modern goods, to even Lewis's dog Seaman, the Shoshone were in awe of the Corps. And of course, there was Sacagawea. As she disembarked the canoe with her baby in hand, she met eyes with Kamehawet. She let out a shout and bounded towards the chief, Mommy. throwing her arms around him. The men would soon learn that Sakagawea was the sister of Kamehawet. The two were reunited by a circumstance so unlikely, it was hard not to see the hand of Providence in it. Uh, she was from that uh, Shoshone nation, and the Shoshone chief that they met turned out to be Sakagawea's brother. She didn't even know he was still alive. It's a, a great story of of how she realizes uh, who she's talking to when she's interpreting and she find, and she realizes that it, uh, her brother is the chief. And then uh, Sakagawea met the friend of hers who had been kidnapped with her several years before and had eventually made it to her own people. The meeting of those people was really affecting, particularly between Sakagawea and another Indian woman who had been taken prisoner at the same time with her, and who had afterwards escaped from the Minotauris and rejoined her nation. Meriwether Lewis, August 17, 1805. The men needed the Shoshone badly, and who did they bring in as their translator? The Shoshone chief's sister, who had been captured by the Hidatsa four years earlier. They had needed to prove that they meant the Shoshone no harm, and there was no better way than this. Communication was now done through Sagagawea, then to her husband Toussaint Charbonneau in Hadatsa, then to Francois Labiche in French, then to Louis in English. It was cumbersome, but it was much more fruitful than the sign language they had been using previously. It was truly a testament to all of these men, and to Sagagawea, that they managed to find a way to share their collective knowledge. And it was again a nod to the judgment shown by Lewis and Clark in selecting men as Labiche proved to be an essential tool in this communication. In fact, Labiche's knowledge of French, English, and several Indian languages so impressed the Otoll Indians earlier in the trip that they had asked the captains to send Labiche on their behalf to make a peace treaty with their enemies, the Pawnees. Recognizing the good fortune they had in finding their new Shoshone friends, the aptly named Camp Fortune was set up at Lamhai Pass at 7,373 feet and the men began the arduous task of moving their supplies from the boats to the camp. On August 18th it was Captain Lewis's 31st birthday and he took time to write in his journal what is without doubt one of the most remarkable entries of the entire journey. This day I completed my 31st year I reflected that I had as yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race, or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. I viewed with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence, and now sorely feel the want 
of that information which those hours would have given me, had they been judiciously expended. I resolved in the future to redouble my exertions and to at least endeavor to promote those two primary objects of human existence by giving them the aid of that portion of talents which nature and fortune have bestowed upon me to live for mankind as I have henceforth lived for myself. Two conclusions can be made from this fascinating insight into the mind of Lewis. One, Lewis no doubt battled depression throughout his life. He had just exerted a momentous amount of energy getting to this point, and with his exhaustion may have also came those dark thoughts once again. And two, Lewis was a man of the Enlightenment. He saw the untapped resources of the lands he was traveling through. He saw that Jefferson had been right. This land would truly be of great use to their burgeoning nation. Lewis may have seen his prior life up until this point as so insignificant compared to the endeavor he was now on that it now seemed like a complete waste of half a life. In any case, he was now determined to continue and finish the task at hand. Upon their departure from the Shoshone, it was agreed that they would supply horses to the Corps, and a man by the name of Old Toby would lead them over the mountains. Old Toby's real name was Pikiquina Swooping Eagle, and he was a Shoshone dog soldier. The Shoshone, realizing the desperation of Lewis, managed to get a pistol and a hundred rounds of ammunition for a single horse. On September 1st, 1805, the Corps set out to cross the Rockies with 29 horses. They had only about a month to get over the mountains before the snow set in, and they were either forced to turn back or become trapped, which would have been deadly. I don't think anybody can adequately describe what a nightmare was ahead for them. They, they must have had an idea of the danger that faced them uh, simply because of their conversations with Kamehameha who did give them a lot of warnings about the terrain on the mountain. Uh, winter was approaching, there'd be snow and numerous obstacles such as fallen timber. Their guides would be old Toby and his son, and though Clark had formed a positive opinion of Toby, he still had to put his lives, the lives of his men in the hands of an unknown quantity, which was extremely risky. The Corps made their way through the foothills of the Rockies, guided by old Toby. The going was made tough by the thick pines and steep rocky terrain, and as the fall rain started, the journey turned into a miserable affair. Game continued to grow sparse, and the major meat source at this point was pheasant and duck, with only the occasional deer or elk. And of course it wasn't a simple up and over and down trip. Uh, the trail that they took and lost at least once during their ordeal, it was pitted with valleys and gullies and steep peaks, and um, their visibility was almost non-existent. Most of the time they couldn't see what lay ahead. Uh, no, no food really, uh, little to no game, and they had to sacrifice three of their horses to avoid starvation. It really was the most extreme test of their courage and their endurance, um, but they had no idea of this when they left the Shoshone. They just hoped that old Toby could get them over and to the other side quickly. The snow soon began falling 
and with each passing day, their situation became more difficult and worrisome. But four days into their journey through the mountains, the men came across the Flathead, or Salish Indians. The Flathead were initially wary of this large band of men on horseback, thinking it may be a raiding party. But soon they realized that these men traveled in such a casual manner, making no attempt to conceal their tracks, and welcomed them into their camp. We met a part of the Flathead Nation of 33 lodges, about 80 men, 400 total, and at least 500 horses. Those people received us friendly, threw white robes over our shoulders, and smoked in the pipes of peace. William Clark, September 4, 1805. Humorously, the men at first mistook the Salish-speaking Flatheads to be the long-fabled Welsh-speaking natives. The Salish language is different from the Utuaztecan language family to which Shoshone belongs, and is, as Lewis would describe, spoken from the throat. Staying only a day, the corps departed the Flathead camp on the 5th, but not before treating some of their well-worn Shoshone horses for stronger, more elegant-looking ones. Upon their departure, Joseph Whitehouse described the Flathead as the lackliest and honestest natives we have seen. On September 9th, the Corps camped at a spot named Traveler's Rest, just southwest of modern-day Missoula, Montana. The flathead they spoke to here assured them that the Lolo Trail through the Bitterroot Mountains would take them no more than five sleeps, six days, from this point. Buoyed by this news, the men pushed on westward on the 10th, but they would soon run into trouble. From the outset, the Lolo Trail was well marked but it soon became faint and unrecognizable. To make matters worse, the hunting party could only come up with a single pheasant over the next two days, and there was an extreme scarcity in food for the fatigued horses. September 14th was a defining day, but what the captains were forced to do. Captain Clark wrote, We were compelled to kill a colt for our men and ourselves to eat, for the want of meat, We named the South Fork Colt Killed Creek. The mountains which we passed today were much worse than yesterday, excessively bad and thickly strewn with fallen timber. Our men and horses are much fatigued. Clark ended the day's journal entry with simply, the rain. No journal entries from Captain Lewis survive from this part of the journey either because they were lost, perhaps sodden by the damp conditions and discarded, or simply because he didn't make any. It is of note though that Captain Clark continued to issue regular journal entries, as did the likes of Gas, Whitehouse, and Ordway. Perhaps Lewis had other duties to take hold of, and his fellow captain and the man under his command knew that continuing to make diligent journal entries in his stead would be prudent. This is one example of how the men supported each other, and took burdens upon themselves for the sake of their fellow expedition members. 
As the man awoke on September 16th, after a night spent shivering, trying to get a few hours of rest to sleep on the uneven ground, they exited their tents only to be disheartened by what they found. Joseph Whitehouse wrote, We were all surprised when we awoke this morning to find ourselves covered in snow. Clark described the general mood of the Corps. I had been wet and as cold in every part as I ever was in my life. Indeed, I was at one time fearful my feet would freeze in the thin moccasins which I wore. The situation was certainly dire, and that is really understating the matter. But I personally wouldn't say it was close to failure. Failure would have been the loss of men, the loss of hope, uh, the becoming irretrievably lost in the mountains. That would have been failure. But these were extremely brave men who had already traveled more than 3,000 miles to reach this point, and they had an incredible will to survive. Uh, personally, I don't think failure was on their minds so much as survival. It had to have been the longest 11 days of their life as they struggled to cross the Bitterroots on the Lolo Trail. Uh, because of all the creeks and gullies they encountered and so much dense vegetation and fallen, and fallen timber, it was painfully slow going and the visibility, the lack of visibility didn't help. They couldn't see what lay ahead or nearby. You know, when, when old Toby did lose the trail, they had to retrace their steps back 10 miles up to the top and start all over again. The men had some portable soup, but little else to eat and no fresh water. There was no game to be had in the mountains, and with winter snow on the way, even berries were scarce. Uh, this was the biggest danger they encountered, and you know, so desperate did they become that they did, uh, over several days, they killed and ate three of their horses. As the man set out again, without anything to eat, and without the ability to even see a clear trail ahead of them, the situation was now desperate. The two captains knew that if they didn't change something soon, then the entire party may be lost. Drastic measures needed to be taken now. Consulting each other on what the best move was at this point, it was decided that the party would split up. Lewis would remain with the bulk of the men, while Clark forged ahead with six members of the hunting party. They set their bearings on a small valley they could intermittently see through the near constant cloud cover. They knew they were close to the end of the Bitterroots and to the assumed hospitality of the Nez Perce. And so Clark and his six companions set out on what was unmistakably the task to rescue the entire expedition. Failure likely meant the death of most, if not all of them, and the failure of the core discovery. Clark shouldered this very real possibility as he set out with the snow and wind lapping in his face. Notably, September 18th is the first journal entry from Captain Lewis in over a week. His worsening realization of their predicament is palpable as he wrote. We suffered for water this day, passing one rivulet only. We dined and supped on a scant portion of portable soup, the only resource being our guns and pack horses. The first is but a poor dependence in our present situation, where there is nothing upon earth except ourselves and a few small pheasants. The Corps had been through so much since they left the friendly village of the Mandans in early spring. 
Their judgment had seen them navigate completely unknown waterways and guided them safely to the Shoshone. Great respect had been shown by the men of the Corps towards their captains throughout, and the days of insubordination and drunkenness were long behind them. With perseverance, determination, and no small measure of ingenuity, they had overcome obstacles on the river, on land, and around the numerous communication barriers. And the compassion and understanding they had shown towards the numerous native tribes had garnered a trust between two wildly contrasting peoples. But now the men were at the end of their physical and mental reserves. They had made it to the west slopes of the Rockies, but having been accustomed to eating up to nine pounds of meat a day on the plains, they were now starving. Their way out of the mountains was uncertain. The core was now split in two, and the weather they knew would only get worse from this point. The fate of the expedition was on a knife edge. This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Einig. Featuring the voice talents of Ethan Thomas as Meriwether Lewis, Jared Thomas as William Clark, and Scott Einig as Patrick Gass. Special thanks to Larry Morris, author of The Fate of the Core and In the Wake of Lewis and Clark, and Ellen Woodger, author of Encyclopedia of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Tune in next time for part four, where the Corps break out of the mountains and encounter both friendly and hostile tribes and set paddles to water once again, this time on the Columbia.